This is the Wow Show, and I'm your host, China Myers. Today we have a very extraordinary guest. His name is Michael Brown, and he's a Southern inspirational published author and pastor. He's here to talk about his journey with God, and also about his books. We're so glad to have you, Michael. Thank you for coming. Tell me a little bit about yourself. Yes, I am retired with my wife uh, here south of Atlanta. Um, we moved here, um, gosh, 12 years ago and um, have enjoyed uh, going as far north as I plan to go. The snow line is above us, so it works for me. And when, right after we moved here, my wife and, and I got into a discussion one day. And so she encouraged me to start writing stories um, to get away from all of the boring theological and academic stuff I used to do. So yeah, uh, yeah. I've been enjoying a busy retirement ever since then. You were a pastor, right? For how long? Oh, um, I did the seminarian duty. <laughs> I went to New Orleans uh, Baptist Theological um, after I had gotten some degree work done uh, at the uh, Baptist College of Florida in Graceville. Um, and while you're in seminary and even at Graceville, I did the same thing. You kind of have that opportunity uh, thrust upon you to become uh, a supply pastor, an interim pastor, um, which I, was was fun experience. I got to work with and uh, serve at several churches throughout the South, from um, outside of New Orleans when I was there to the Panhandle of Florida, Southern Alabama, in um, Northern Florida. So got to enjoy that in South Georgia. Yeah. Wow. Wow. So. Um was it that you thought you felt like you had to, to do that or you your faith made you do it? What made you do it? Become a pastor? Well, you know, I, yeah, it, it's you're not compelled to do it. Um, it was an opportunity for me because I went back to school uh, after a, a 30, almost 30 year career in business. Uh, and I had always had a faith based, faith based activity side of me. And this gave me an opportunity to, uh, you know, to get out and see what it would be like. Uh, and I felt God kind of compelled me to um, to take the challenge. And I got to um, communicate and visit with a lot of wonderful church folks uh, in various settings, um, you know, to preach to three people versus preaching to 300, 400, you know, in a church church. Uh, so it was a it was an interesting time and a fun time uh, for me at that to kind of you know feel out what I where God was leading me is I guess the yeah. best way to put it um, right. and it was because of that experience I ended up doing what I ended up doing where I ended up going into the classroom and coaching on the sidelines for about six years and um, which was kind coach? of one of those bucket list things. What did you? And coach? it was a God thing. Football, um, football oh. in the South is its own religion. And, uh, Friday night lights, but, right? 
Friday night lights, nothing <laughs> like it in Alabama and in Florida. Um, yeah, I enjoyed that. Um, it was kind of one of those bucket list things that uh, I had always been around the sport because of my sons and even my own background. Um, and I got to uh, rekindle my connection with the Fellowship of Christian Athletes. Uh, and I became a, a campus sponsor for that, the chaplain for the, the campus. Um, so I enjoyed that part of it. To me, that was me a much more meaningful um, experience working with uh, high school students um, and impacting their lives, um, you know, outside the church. And, uh, and it's actually the background, the backdrop for part of the story that, uh, that I wrote in the Shiloh Mystery Series. Wow. Okay. Well, here's a personal question. How did mm -hmm. you find your faith? I, I got a one word answer. Um, God. Uh, yeah. The, um, yeah. I mean, you know, when you're 71 years old and you're thinking back on your life, um, you know, there are certain events that took place in my life. Um, my mother kind of helped me with that, but I, the most, probably the biggest influence on my faith walk was my uh, grandmother, my mother's mother. Um, she was uh, she was a true blue, uh, all American Irish Catholic, and uh, and I used to go visit with her, and she probably had a bigger impact on me than uh, just about anybody in my family. Uh, my dad was a you know. Uh, a non-church going Georgia uh, Baptist. My mother was uh, a former Catholic because she married a Georgia, you know, Baptist. Uh, my mother did put myself and my brother, uh, I've, I've got uh, four siblings, but I have one brother that's year younger. Him and I both ended up, you know, going to church, Sunday school, you know, when we were little. Uh, and that was something my mother took pride in doing. And I think that helped me to... Uh, on my journey. So, you know, but I attributed it all to God, just put me in the right places at the right time to slowly develop uh, the journey of faith. Yeah, yeah. When was your God moment? I don't know if you ever had that asked to uh, you. Yeah, well, yeah, probably the biggest impact for me was when I was in high school, um, I got to go to the Fellowship of Christian Athlete uh, summer camp in Black Mountain, North Carolina. Um, and you're in the shadow of Billy Graham and all that. This was a long, long, long time ago. Um, the summer of 1968. Um, and it was through that week long um, experience. I got to see at that moment that where God was, was able to at least opened my eyes to say, there's more to, to walking your faith than thinking about having to be a preacher or, you know, there's more opportunities. When I got to meet some of these athletes who, you know, d did what God wanted them to do in reaching people like myself as a youngster. And that impacted me through most of my, my adult life. So, so you were trying to inspire them, but in actuality, they inspired you, right? Oh, absolutely. That what happened. Absolutely. Yeah, I get that. What made you want to be a pastor? I know you said, like, you know, it came upon you and you just got into it. But I'm sure there was a moment that you had to just think about it, you know, because that entailed a uh, lot, I'm sure. 
It did. I mean, I took, you know, when you're in seminary, you know, I took the, the, the various courses to learn how to write sermons and do all of the research and, you know, study the Bible, obviously, um, through and through. Um, and to be honest with you, the first time I went to do supply preaching, um, you know, uh, at a church, my knees were knocking. Um, what, what is you supply know, I, preaching? What is that? Supply preaching is when the the pastor of the particular church um, was absent for a particular Sunday or they were, you know, without a pastor and they were just filling in the pulpit uh, during that interim period. So they would have various guest pastors come in. Okay. Um, And so you'd be sharing a message, a sermon in front of people that you just met for the first time. Um, I, you know, I, 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 I won't not only use the word enjoy in the wrong sense, but I felt the sense of accomplishment and doing, you know, um, helping uh, the churches. Um, and there's far more to being a pastor than preaching a good sermon. Um, yeah, that's something imagine. that I learned. Yeah, I, when I when I served as an interim pastor at a couple of churches where it was extended time, and I got to be involved with the members of the church, uh, all of a sudden the reality of being a pastor versus preaching. Uh, to this day, I never have a problem talking or speaking in front of a group. Uh, and I, I've, I've done that for most of my career. But when you're going into homes, uh, whether it's of an elderly uh, individual in the congregation with various issues, or you go into a uh, uh, nursing home and you're visiting yeah people at that stage of life, or you go into a home where, and I had this situation where uh, a a mother and father had lost a child in a severe car accident, and they were dealing with that trauma. Let me Um, stop you there for a minute. Now, you're saying you would go into the home and pastor them? Sure. Or preach to them? Oh, okay. Well, visit. You're visiting them. As a pastor... A pastor is more than a preacher. A pastor is somebody who is compa- has a compassion, a compelling to come in and be somebody that can console somebody, give some godly guidance um, in overcoming uh, any number of issues, um, to just be a friend at that particular moment in time. Um, right. To this to this day, I love the TV series Grandchester, even though it's a little quirky. But you know, it talks it. about is it good. Yeah, it's a, it it is because it talks about a vicar, which is a pastor in England. You know, dealing with the the folks in the the, the local community and getting to understand them, and. You know, like I said, it gets a little quirky, but, you know, um, it it does explain it a lot more. And I guess maybe that's why I enjoy watching it, although I don't get into some of his dalliances. Never did. I was married and enjoyed it, but I still enjoy it. So pastoring is not just preaching. And that's something I always would share to anybody asking that question. Speaking of pastor shows, uh, did you ever see Greenleaf? No, I did not. No. Very, very, very good pastor show it's about Uh uh, a daughter and and she has the ability to preach as well and i I won't go into it but yeah that one was really good too i'm gonna check out yours and you check out mine (laughs) all right that's a deal yeah um what would you say to someone 
that's lost? What would you say to them? Uh, I want to remind, and, and I, I've had that thrown at me many times. Um, number one is you're on a journey, and the answers from God are not always clear. Um, right. And God doesn't necessarily walk up and tap you on the shoulder or give you slip you the note that says this is what you must do or how you should act. Um, but if you take the time to recognize that, one, God created you. He knows you inside and out. Uh, he knows why you do the things you do before you do it. Um, and he cares for you. Um, if you'll just stay true to that belief in your heart, um, I think you'll hear more of the answers that you want to hear. Normally what we do is there's this battle that goes on inside of us and it's our internal spirit kind of bucking the Holy Spirit, um, you know, saying, oh, um, no, God, I, I understand you, God, but, you know, we're our little spirit loves to throw those butts out there, you know. Um, but yeah, recognize that, we, you know, God knows that, that we're imperfect human beings. I mean, uh, and there's no such thing as a perfect human being. And, um, you know, there's... I agree. You know, so just remember that God created you and cares for you is probably the most important thing to, to share about that. And don't don't look for the neon lighted sign or that big, you know, cataclysmic moment where God speaks to you with his, you know, Charlton Heston voice, you know, yeah. about what to do. <laughs> yeah, right. That doesn't happen, right? <laughs> no. <laughs> but... um Man, um, the way the world is going, I think there's a lot more lost people than there sure. was maybe 30 years ago, you know. Um, why do you think that is? Well, um, first of all, 30 years ago, there was probably uh, about 30% less people on this planet. Um, so... Every time we have a birth, we're increasing the odds of, you know, that scenario. Um, technology is moving so fast. The world is changing so fast. Um, I, I can reflect on, you know, being as old as I am. <clears throat> um, when I was younger, life was much slower paced, simpler, although we thought at the time we were, you know, I, you know, I, I went to high school in the 60s and was in college in the early 70s. Um, but, the, you know, when, hey, listen, let's put it this way. Uh, when I was watching television as a high school student, there were three channels uh, to watch. And um, you certainly didn't have the computer. You didn't have the cable channels. You didn't have all that kind of communication. You actually had to read the newspaper uh, if you were going to try to catch up on that. Um, we didn't have cell phones and, you know, you were, you really were, I think you had a lot more time to think for yourself. Today, we are not thinking for ourselves as like we used to. Um, we're being told what to believe, how to think. We're barraged with opinions and our, our only, yeah, we're all this information is just barreling at us. And the only thing that we can do is um, is to kind of maybe filter it a little bit to where we're comfortable with enough to absorb it. But 
even our best efforts, we're still being inundated with all of that. And, you know, whether you're on Facebook or Instagram or Twitter or I don't know, you know, I'm not even on half of those TikTok or all these other social media sites where you're just scrolling through the Internet uh, or going on cable TV, you know, now. I mean, whatever, three, four hundred channels on a, on a major cable network. Yeah. Um, you're, you know, and it's funny. Um, I binged watched uh, Andy of Mayberry. And I still do from time to time. That was a good show. I catch my breath, you know, um, with what's going on. How they live, uh, right? Going back to the show. Yeah, yeah. I, I try to, I try to keep myself limited that way. Yes, but that's. I think that explains why there. We see more. Let's say this: evil or bad news travels far faster and much louder than good news and goodness. Um, And it's sad to say that. Yeah, that's that's very true. Evil. Uh, this this is uh, the burning question. There is so much evil in the world, right? Um, and mm-hmm. there's a lot of wolves out there amongst the sheep. Mm-hmm. How do you put God first in a world that doesn't? How, how do you how do you do that? Because we have so many temptations, like you said, we have so many things that we can go to. We have so many distractions in this world. How do we how do we focus and put God first for people that don't know that? Well, sure, sure. Well, one is that uh, I'm of the philosophy that the, a, a Christian or a God, a person that believes in God and um, is needs to be a kind of a person that's willing to go into a, a, a river stream and not go with the flow. Because everybody else goes with the flow because it's the least resistance. You're not getting any negativity thrown at you. But you're now being subject to the current of the river and wherever it's going to take you. Um, And you really miss out on a lot. But a person who's trusting in God and, and who is seeking after his will is going upstream. And when you go upstream, you're fighting the current. Things are flying by you much faster because everything's going downstream and you're going upstream. Yeah. And I think that that's the way we need to take a look at life. It's harder. You have to you have to be focused um, when things are happening around you and you're around a gang of people, a group of people, um, you know, it's it's easy just to blend in. It's like Psalm one talks about. Let your ear hear, then you sit down and you end up getting pulled into, you know, the, the evildoers. And Amen. where, yeah. you know, people, when you've got God on your side, you recognize, okay, I'm hearing something, but it's not what I really should be listening to. Right. And you've got to either make a choice at that moment to walk away or to stand up, you know, and to, fight, to fight or flee kind of thing. 
And but yeah. you you want to choose your battles very carefully, and I always say that, especially today. Um, yeah, I don't stand on the preaching right? box. Yeah, yeah. You, you you typically can come out scarred on a lot of those. So pick your battles carefully. But yeah. yes, you, yeah. you let God let God kind of guide you that way. Yeah. Well, um, I know that you're into writing now, right? And you've been you've been Correct. writing yeah. since. What, 2017? No, before that. Um, right after we moved down here, um, I've got five grandchildren. Um, and matter of fact, um, two of them were born the year that we moved here, um, or within a year of us moving here. And I, you know, and I was trying to figure out what I wanted to do, and my wife allowed me to retire early. <laughs> and uh, she joked about and this is if you if you ever get a chance to read my stories my main character is similar uh where his wife convinces him to retire early to write the stories that he always wanted to write because he was he was stuck as an editor but i wasn't an editor but i was i was the preacher teacher so i you know i was involved in academic and theological stuff i still got books three ring binders and all kinds of stuff stuffed away that uh even i don't pull out on a regular basis um, and my wife said, you know, your grandkids are never probably going to read any of this. And I said, well, what do they read? She said stories. So that began me on my journey. She gave me permission to invest, uh, in, uh, researching a good writing coach, uh, go research into writing novels because it is different. It's a whole different kind of writing because you're writing with a, uh, reading public that wants to be entertained and yet informed at the same time. They want to walk away with something from the experience of reading your story. Um, so I started doing that. Um, going into 2014 is when I honestly said I put my pen down on the paper for the first time and started writing what became um, Sanctuary, A Legacy of Memories, the first book. <clears throat> and that came out in 2017. Oh, okay. Okay. Well, I got I got no, another was... question for you. Um, yeah. Before we start talking about your books, because they sound amazing, but um, the testament. I'm reading a quote: "The testament of a man's life mm -hmm. is not on the magnitude of possessions or property left to his heirs, but the reach of his legacy long after his death." Where did that come from? Was that, you, was that your quote? Yeah. That, that, from your book? Oh, I, it's my wording of a reference in the Bible that refers to um, think of the names that are in that were spoken about in the Bible long after they passed away. And they continued to be, you know, on on, on the lips of people, um, you know, long after the, his that person's death. And. Being a historian in my background, think about the people to which we, whether you're, you know, a, a fan of the Bible, you know, that way. But e even if you're just a his somebody that likes history, who do you talk about? W why do we talk about them? What is it about their legacy that lasts decades upon decades, in some cases centuries after they actually passed away? That meant that they had an impact on society in some form. So when I was writing this story, that was um, on my mind. 
and what you just read is the very last line in the story. Uh, it's at the very it's the last thing I wrote at the end of my second book. I love book. it. I love um, it. That's awesome. Yeah. So I mean, and and we get hung up in, in the the Bible makes concepts uh, context about it, and it shows up in the story that we don't own our land; we're borrowing it. You yeah, can really. hold the title to the land, but it don't go to the, you know, it ain't going with you to heaven. It's not yeah. going to go with you into the grave. The land right. may bury you, but, you know, um, your money is going to end up being spent by somebody else if you leave it. Um, yeah. But the one thing that you have control over um, up until your death is your legacy. You know, what kind of impact did you have on people that they'll continue to talk about you? I suspect Okay, well, let's let's use a couple of names real quick. Okay, we can say Martin Luther King. He's going to be spoken about for a long, long, long time. Long time. Um, Billy Graham is going to be spoken about for a long, long, long long time and quoted. And there's, you know, many historical uh, people that certainly are, you know, Ben Franklin to this day is still, you know, quoted all the time. now, we're not all going to expect ourselves to live in that category, but we can control how we are thought about uh, beyond our funeral. And yeah. how is our family, our friends going to talk about us? Or are we just going to be forgotten? Yeah. And that's the I, scariest thing. That is. That is real scary because that's in the realm of possibility. You know, people are going to move on oh, yeah. and each generation is going to forget us more, you know. Hello everyone! Before we get back to the inspirational WOW show, I want to take a moment and talk about China Myers' best-selling, gripping, heartfelt book, A Letter to God. You could find this true life story on Amazon. Now, let's get back to the show. Um, yeah. Tell me a little bit about your published work. Yeah, you got a lot of stuff out um, there. I, uh... I've been I've been fortunate. Um, you know, people have asked me, you know, boy, you've done well. I said, well, I, I, I'm happy. Um, it sold more books than I ever thought it would. Um, my first book, Sanctuary, has been the most successful of the three. Um, and it spearheaded what is now known as the Shiloh Mystery Series, uh, because the storyline is about a small southern uh, rural town called Shiloh, which is your quintessential um, small town in South Georgia by description, you know, and, um, there's more there, you know, it's surrounded by cotton fields and, uh, you know, and corn and peanuts and pecans, um, kind of philosophy. And, and on any given Monday, um, you know, you've got your farmers going in and out of the town with their pickups and their trailers and their equipment and picking up supplies for the week's work in the fields. And then, You've got the church uh, element in it. Uh, the town is depicted as being uh, a, a former county seat, but things happened in history that changed that. But the town is uh, guarded by the the three sentinels in the town. And the three sentinels represent the Baptist church, Methodist church, and Presbyterian church. And their spires overlook the city hall. That's the only the only buildings that um, are taller than the the, uh, uh, the top of the of the, uh, the the town hall or the administration yeah. building, and um, but people there's more shared in a small town, and this goes back to my upbringing. But there's more shared in 
church pews, which is something I always love to make. You know, I don't make fun in a bad sense. I make fun of us in a positive sense. But you want to learn about a community. You go into the church foyer and church pews and listen to the pre the pre sermon and the post sermon times. Um, I didn't want to put the smoking tree into the story, but that's where I also would do that because the men would be out there at the smoking tree at a lot okay. of churches, which is yeah. kind of funny. We'll yeah. go to a deacon <laughs> meeting, but I didn't want to bring that up either. Um, but then you would, you know, uh, or go to the local barber shop, and the men right. would—that's where the men would boast and talk about things and checker the checkerboard games going on at the local general store. Um, yeah. And it's funny that I, you know, my wife and I travel through a lot of small towns and we actually walk into these little general stores. And to this day, 21st century, there's still, you know, men wearing their bib overalls or, you know, their corduroy shirts and they're sitting around a table next to a pot belly stove playing cards or checkers or telling wild long stories. Um, yeah. So, and that's the atmosphere that I tried to, to create in Shiloh. And faith is a part of that community. It's it's integral. Um, there's one of the main characters is the pastor of the Baptist church um, that the main character, Theo Phillips, gets connected with. Um, and they overcome the obstacles and challenges that take place in, throughout the stories, um, mostly on a faith-based approach to it to, to kind of keep in the right direction. Um, right, right. So it was fun writing. I bet. I bet. So um, here's another question for you. What what got you into writing the stories of the South and stuff you remember? What what made you do that? The best answer I can tell you on that, that is, is tr as close to the truth as I can mutter it without embarrassing anybody, is after my father passed away um, in 2008. Um my father was a with the Georgia boy um, by birth, and he uh, he lived through as a young a young man, a young teenager, uh, through the depression. And I never knew that part of my dad. My dad ended up being the John Wayne of my life, the big six foot wow. four, you know, kind of guy. He Did had you smoke Marlboros. You know, <laughs> He used to, but he was he was a tobacco and cigar smoker actually. Um, okay. But he, um, but he had three brothers that um, were all Americans uh, at the University of Florida. Um, he himself played football until he broke his neck right after World wow. War II, um, so he couldn't play. But um, I knew that part of his life, and I knew how he yeah. became very successful in the airline industry. Um, and he, him and I started a family business together um, in the 1980s. And I ended up leaving the business so it would survive, but the business turned and thrived and became very successful. Um, so I always looked up to my father, but I never knew the story behind the story. And after he passed away, the only surviving brother um, was there and he revealed the story of the, what happened to the family during the depression where things were so bad for my grandparents that my grandfather left the family to go look for work. Uh, they were living on uh, north of Atlanta, up in Gwinnett County. And my grandmother took the two youngest children that were infants 
And then my, my dad and his brother were sent to uh, my grandmother's uh, brother-in-law and sister's house who lived on a farm in Snellville, Georgia. Now, that won't mean a whole lot to you, but to anybody right. listening that's from the Georgia area, they know where Snellville today is a me- big metropolitan area of North Georgia. Back in those yeah. days, it was a pig farms and, and dirt roads. Um, yeah. But it was a time where my dad didn't even have a pair of shoes and he had one pair of co- coverall jeans and a T-shirt. And that was his wardrobe. And wow. um, yeah. that was the side of him that he never revealed to the family. But it explained why he behaved the way he did and why he valued the home over everything else and the value of family. Um, well, and when I got else, to hear that the depression, so that that has a lot to do with it, too, right? <laughs> Absolutely. Absolutely. And when I <clears throat> realized what my grandfather had done and sacrificed um, that, to help the family and eventually he goes back, brings the family to Miami, Florida in 1940, uh, thanks to his brother in law who got him a job uh, in South Florida. And um, in Miami, and uh, my grandfather went on to be a, a very well-known tile layer in South Florida oh. for most all of his career. So, but it, it yeah, it, it influenced me that way. Oh. Well, um, also, um, here's something. Now, this is kind of an obvious question, but what made you start writing about Southern history? Well, when I was writing. The three uh, fiction novels that I wrote, um, history has always been part of my life. I mean, that's just something I've always been fascinated by ever since high school. Um, And when I went back to seminary, I studied Christian history and and really went into world history big time. And I taught it um, for about six years um, after I left seminary. Um, So while I was writing those three novels, bits of history show up in there. And then in, I, I guess the best way to explain how I'm, I have now written a historical novel that's out for uh, being queried to publishers right now is I went to with my wife to the Georgia coast looking for a new setting for my fictional characters. And I stumbled across a f- phenomenal story uh, in Darien, Georgia, on the, on the barrier island called Sapelo Island off of Georgia's coast. And when I did some research there, I told my wife, I said, forget about, you know, what we were planning on doing. I need to write this story. Um, and I felt compelled to do that. Um, call that a God moment. Um, yeah. And it was important to me to present, you know, uh, some historical truths in a story about characters in real life. Uh, as the Civil War was breaking out and how that impacted families and and what took place. And and there's a lot in that to unpack. And we we certainly don't have forever to be able to do that. But it it just struck my historical chords just perfectly. Yeah, yeah. Now, I'm going to digress for a second. You talk about your wife, Connie. How did you guys meet? Because she sounds like an amazing woman. She is. I think she's in the back room, so she might hear me. Um, yeah, we've been we've been married as of next week, forty nine years. Wow. Um, I yeah. Um, I met her uh, at my house 
at a party that my brother was throwing because she actually was in his uh, high school class. Um, and uh, there was, you know, the connection there. And I met her, fell in love, and uh, we're off to the races. <laughs> so, you know, and here we are staring, already talking about our 50th anniversary next summer and taking a whirlwind tour of, uh, of our country. Because there's the places we've never been that we just both want to go to. Yeah, yeah. Well, America is a really big place. I don't know if a lot of people realize that. I mean, because there's so many places to go and so many places to see. You will never see them all in your lifetime. Yeah. So no, good no. Luck with that. When I was in corporate, yeah, when I was in corporate world, I traveled a lot. I, you know, spent a lot of time in New York, L.A. <clears throat> you know, Dallas, you know, all over Chicago. And I flew all these places and I could see them as I'm flying over them. Or right. if I went to someplace unique, um, I was too busy doing business. I didn't get the chance to enjoy them. Yeah. Uh, and I always said I wanted to come back and bring my wife. And I wanted her to see some of the places that I had at least saw, you know, in a passing way. So, or breeze uh, through. Yeah, yeah. on a big, big month away. Yep. Yeah, yep. good for you. Absolutely. So um, what books have you written that, that were published? Name them. Um, Sanctuary, A Legacy of Memories is the first, um, and it's in the series. Um Testament, An Unexpected Return, is the sequel. It keeps the main characters flowing to the next story um, in the series. Um, and I'll give you some quick one-liners here in a second about each of them. And then the third book um, just came out not long ago, and that's Purgatory, A Progeny's Quest. Um, so they all have this Sanctuary, Testament, Purgatory connection action, which a lot of people ask me, is this a religious book? And I go, no. I said, there's, you know, you can't dodge religion in small towns, but it's a small town story. Yeah. Um, but Sanctuary introduces you to the main character, Theo Phillips and his wife, as they leave Atlanta to go back to their roots so that he can begin to write the stories that his wife wants him to, you know, write. Because um, she knows that he's, you know, feels uh, left out. Uh, he always was the editor, never the writer. And he ends up um, arriving in the town as the town is still uh, mourning over the loss of a young coach who saved lives the night of the courthouse fire, but not his own. And this compels Theo to look into the story. And it has a very providential connection with Theo and Liddy's background and how that plays out in the story. Um and it, and it really, you know, kind of launched it. It's been, that's been the most successful story. It, it got picked up by Publishers Weekly and had a great review for it. And um, that helped me quite a bit. The, so um, obviously, once you have that kind of little bit of a success, the next question is always asked, well, what's next? So I wrote Testament. Yeah. In Testament, the second story, um, there's a woman, envision a woman who abandoned her family 20 years earlier. She left um, the marriage uh, with two young teenagers and a toddler, and uh, she disappeared. And uh, 
she comes back unannounced 20 years later. The Her boys are now young men in the town, and the first thing they ask when they see her arrive in town is, why is Dixie back in town? They don't yeah. say mom. They say Dixie because yeah. she had a reputation, and that, that plays out in the story. Some resentment there. There's a lot of resentment there um, because they see her influence on their father, who ha- is the mayor of the town, and um, who's going through some um, physical issues uh, without giving too much away in the story. And um, so, but they, they come to find out that there's uh, her her motives were not all pure and you know upfront um, the way they were intended. Um, but that's a testament, and that turns into a suspense ending. And then uh, the third book, I wanted to have some fun with thinking back on a small South Georgia town. And because most uh, small Southern towns are are very Protestant. Uh, I had already introduced a character who was Greek Orthodox, and, um, you know, he had to be accepted in this little town. But in this story, I introduce a young girl named Pepper, who was raised by her grandmother as her guardian yeah, outside of Natchez, Mississippi, in a little town called Vidalia, Louisiana. Now, if any of your folks listening know where that is, that's right next to Faraday, where Jerry Lee Lewis, Jimmy Swaggart, and Nikki Gilly were raised. Um, okay. And it's across the, the bridge to Natchez. But anyway, in the opening of the story, the grandmother has passed away. She leaves the posthumous note. And she says, if you want to know anything about your estranged mother, you need to go to Shiloh, Georgia, and meet this particular individual. If she is still alive, if if anybody knows where she is, if she's still alive, he'll know. She had already lost her, what she knew as her father, years earlier when she was young. Um, He was killed in a dubious situation in New Orleans. He was not the, the best of guys. He was kind of a bad guy in his own way. He was nefarious. Um, <laughs> that's an excellent word. Yes, that's perfect. Uh, very nefarious bad dealings. Uh, um, there's some people just can't help themselves. And uh, But anyway, so Pepper jumps in Grandma's old Buick sedan and drives 500 miles as a 16-year-old to Shiloh, Georgia. So she's kind of a feisty, precocious 16-year-old. And she arrives in town and Theo and Liddy end up playing a role when this person who um, Pepper sought out was knew she had to to do something with Pepper and he couldn't have her at his house because he was an older single uh, lawyer in town. So he brings them over to Theo and Liddy and Theo and Liddy get to meet Pepper and get to know her and so the young girl in the story, just as an override to the story, uh, gets to discover family she never knew about. And, and what she learned by the end of the story is, is that real family members, what, who you really would call family, are willing to risk their lives when your life is in danger. Yeah, and real that family. is the story, in, the, the story ends in a very climatic, suspenseful ending uh, where she learns some lessons at the end. So it sounds those incredible. are the three stories. I, I still may write a fourth, but uh, right now I'm just finishing. I had just finished the last two and a half years working on this historical novel about Sapelo. So I'm, I'm catching my breath <laughs> before yeah, I start yeah. jumping And congratulations is in order. You just got a professor's job. I thought you were retired. 
No, it's not a professor's job. Um, I got um, in. I one of the things that I enjoy doing is helping people. Um, Me too. I, for the last four years, we had been forming what was uh, the Hometown Novel Nights program, which has now become Hometown Novel Writers Association. It's now an incorporated 5013C corporation in the state of Georgia, uh, where writers are helping writers on the journey okay. to publishing and promoting their books. And we in, we introduce local authors to local audiences south of Atlanta. We are all tired of running to Atlanta for everything. Um, and then as a result of that, excuse me, as a result of that, um, I just, what you're referring to is uh, I got invited and just accepted to be the, uh, on the board of trustees at the, the, the prestigious Noonan Carnegie Library Foundation here in Noonan, Georgia. Um, so that's quite an honor to be asked to do that. So, yeah, congratulations. Um, I'm staying busy. Yeah, staying busy. I joke with my wife. I'm busier now as a retired 70-year-old than I was, you know, a number of years ago. It's, so, isn't that the way it but goes? But I'm having fun. Yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah. What would you say to someone who wanted to start a writing career? How would they go about it? Um, I get that question quite a bit. Um, first of all, realize that you're not alone. Uh, there's a lot of people that you know, have a desire. They're, they have an inkling of a story or something about their life, whether it's a memoir or a fiction story or whatever. Um, I tell them, first of all, just write the, the story that is uniquely yours. And that is important for you to be able to do. Um, just begin writing. There's a community of writers somewhere near you. And with the virtual world today, it, it can be uh, just a fingertip away on the Internet. Uh, I was just on a workshop this morning um, with 25 writers. The editing part, all of that stuff, there's so much support out there, it's available to you. But the one thing that editors can't do for you and publish can, publishers can't do for you and any writing group can do for you is write the story that only you can write. Um, so no matter whether you're writing on, um, three hole punch, you know, paper line paper, or whether you're banging away on a computer, just write your story and the rest of it will, it's just nothing more than going through the steps beyond that. Don't give well, up the hope. Yeah. That great advice, because basically like you're saying, you just got to start and then go from there. Everything else will follow. Correct. I, I agree. How hard was it to get your work published? Was that hard to do? Ooh. Yeah. I'll give you the good news and I'll give you the good news and the bad news. I already know. Well, go um, ahead. I'll let you. <laughs> the, the, good, the good help. news is there's more means to publish than ever before. Yeah. Um, in good. all yeah. forms. And um, the bad news is there's more things, more ways to get published than ever before. So it's a double-sided coin. Um, you're can, right now on Amazon at any one particular moment, you know, they, uh, they alone, and I'm not even talking about other publishing formats, but on Amazon alone, there's close to 10 million books that are inside of their system that they can print at any particular time. Um, that's a lot of books. And any given year, there's roughly a million books being published. Um, so you're, and that's all genres. Um, so you, the, the challenge of it is 
getting writing the best book you can write and getting it seen and heard out there, you know, getting people aware that the book is available. Writing a book by itself is no guarantee of success. Um, working with a, a good a group um, will help you to kind of, you know, get your, your, your exposure of your book out there. And then a lot of it's good luck. Um, I just talked about this this morning. A lot of people know who Delilah Owens is, okay, um, where the crawdads sing. Number one bestseller for the last three years. She has outsold John Patterson, John Grisham, and all of these other well-known authors. Um, and she's a first-time author as a 70-year-old. Uh, Delilah wrote a great story. Uh, outstanding, got it, you know, got it to a publisher, but that's still not going to guarantee anything. But first, Oprah Winfrey gave it a blessing. Now that 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 adds a lot of kudos. Yeah. And then right after that, Reese Witherspoon's book club grabbed a hold of it, and we all know if you haven't gone to see the movie, go see the movie. Reese Witherspoon signed her for the movie deal that the movie's out this summer. And by the way, if you haven't seen it, go see it because it's as close to the book as you can possibly be. What's the name um, of it? Where the Crawdads Sing. Okay. I yeah. think my daughter I, I, did go to see it, and she said it was amazing. Yeah. Yeah. Young, young girl gets raised in the marsh by herself. Her family abandons her, and, and she survives and becomes Taylor and thrives in the situation. In it. Yeah. It, it, I mean, it's it very, very, very good. So... Um, so what I'm just basically trying to say to you, you know, yes, it's a difficult time to try to publish a book, but it's also a very favorable time to publish a book. And if you, if you really feel led to do so, start with the belief that you've written a good story, get it edited real well, stay with it, persistent, determined to get it published with the, uh, the best publisher you can and get it out there. And if your first book doesn't sell extremely well, fine, go write a second book. That one still doesn't get you there. Write a third one if necessary. Eventually, it'll the you'll get better at what you're doing and it, you'll get your name out there. And that's my best advice. Yeah, that's really, really good advice because like you said, it's not easy. And sometimes, not all the time, but sometimes it's who you know that helps. Um, oh, yeah. A lot of times, um, I think I've seen, I've noticed, stay persistent, keep, you know, uh, contacting people. And a lot of times, um, people talk about getting a literary agent. Um, I know the deal with that, but what do you, what would you say to someone who's thinking about getting a literary agent? Yeah, no, um, there's, it depends on what you, have envisioned for your for your book depends on what where, where you see the book going as far as the market what audience you're going to be trying to reach um, if you're trying to get published with one of the national traditional publishers um, you might say the New York City publishers because that really is the heart of the publishing world still there um, you need a literary agent because they're the door opener. They're the gatekeepers for the publishers and they're the door openers for the authors. Um, so you actually have two levels of convincing that you have to do. You got to sell a literary agent to, to contract with you. 
to become your door opener. And then she or he is going to help you get to as a gatekeeper to the publisher. So that that story's got to be sold again to the publisher and the right publisher is the key there. Um, very few opportunities unless you are and even I'll say it this way, even if you know somebody who is um, a acquisition editor or somebody in a muckety muck at one of these larger publishers, even if you know one of them and they say, yeah, we'll publish your book. Tell me who your agent is, is what they're going to ask you because they won't do business without an agent. Now, if you're, don't want them to go through that or you're just finding that too difficult because you're still new at it. Um, you know, my first books, I didn't have an agent and I went and, and dealt with regional publishers. There's a lot of independent publishers out there that will receive your manuscripts directly. And um, for me, I was happy with that. Um, my books sold predominantly in the South by the nature of the, the subject matter. Um this newest, this newest book, I'm trying to get hooked up with uh, an agent right now, and uh, because I'm trying to get it on a national level because of the right. topic of the book. Right. Um, so yeah, the agent thing is important, but you got to find the right agent too, and just like trying to find the right publisher. Yeah, yeah. I thank you so much for coming. I really appreciate it, and you have been a really great guest. So tell everyone how they can find you and um, how they can um, contact you if they need to or find your work. Very good. Yeah, the, probably the best way to answer all of that is if you go to tmbrownauthor.com. That's T-M-B-R-O-W-N author, A-U-T-H-O-R dot C-O-M. If you go there, um, you'll find my contact information, my blogs, um, the bookshop in there will will just redirect you to either Amazon or any number of possibilities that you can buy any of my books, either on Kindle uh, or paperback, you know, printed editions. Um, and or if you want a personalized signed copy of one of my books, you can just email me at Mike at tmbrownauthor.com. And say I'd like to, you know, order a set of the books, and I'd love for you to sign them and personalize them. I'll be happy to arrange for that to be done as well. Yeah, well, thank you, Mike. I appreciate it. Like I said, and you have been incredible. Um, I thank you for your time and your grace. You have just been so gracious, and um, good luck with everything. Good luck. China, I am, well, listen, I am honored and I am humbled that, you know, I got invited to be on your show. Um, I, I researched some of the podcasts. I love how you handle it. Um, you've got yep. a true spirit. God is working in your life. That's evident. And, um, and I pray that you have many more successful interviews and podcasts coming forward. And I thank you for the opportunity and honor to be here. And, um, Again, thank you. And I look forward to sharing this podcast with all of my friends in my network. Yeah, thank you so much. Wow, that was a great show. I hope you guys enjoyed that. Well, this is The Wow Show, and I'm your host, China Myers. Thank you for being here. And I want to say thank you 